protocol for quarantine COVID uh, today. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Um, This is one of those times where the sermon is more for the preacher than it is for the church. Uh, This is this is a sermon that I need for myself. And so, if there are times where it seems like I'm talking to myself, um, and I get lost in that, then uh, please forgive me. Last week, we talked about one of the central questions that Ecclesiastes causes us to ask, and that is, what is the point? What's the point of being wise if you're just going to die like every other fool? What's the point of building something if it's just going to be broken down? What's the point of accomplishing something when you won't be able to enjoy it? What's the point of accumulating wealth and possessions when you're just going to pass it down to somebody else? This also is one of the central themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the reason why 38 times in this book he uses the word hevel which translates as vanity or meaningless. Or the word that we've been using? Bubbles. That's right. Thank you, Eli. Uh, Solomon, for six chapters, uh, chapters one through six, hammered home point after point after point, emphasizing that life under the sun, if this is all that there is, is bubbles. It is an enigma. It is without guarantee. It is like vapor. It's impossible to grasp. It's transient. It's here one moment and gone the next. And so Solomon does everything he possibly can to lead us to the inevitable question, what is the point? But like we talked about last week, he doesn't want us to stay there. He doesn't want us to remain there. As hard as he has worked to get us there, he wants us to continue on further from there. His ultimate point is not that life is pointless. His ultimate point is that life without God is pointless. Life lived with eternal purpose, with eternal perspective, is filled with joy. It is filled with eternal impact if it is lived well. However, there's something we need to recognize about a life that produces eternal impact. And that is that that eternal impact isn't always immediately recognized. Even though a wisely lived life might be producing an eternal harvest of good fruit, it might seem like it's being wasted. During this short Uh, vain 70 years under the sun, it might seem at the time to be pointless. But we don't see the things that God sees. And this is an area where we must be led by faith, not by sight. Because if we are faithful to him, in our lives he will produce an eternal weight of glory. In 1881, a pharmacist named William Leslie moved to Chicago from his native Canada. Leslie had just gotten saved and the Lord put it on his heart to be a medical missionary. And so he joined forces with and was trained under the American Baptist Union. The American Baptist Union, by the way, was founded by another missionary, um, Adoniram Judson. And so during the labor and the training that, uh, that, that William Leslie undertook here in the United States, the Lord put it on his heart to 
be called and set sail for the Democratic Republic of Congo. After two years of work in Congo, William Leslie became deathly ill and nearly died. But he was cared for at the time by a nurse named Clara Hill. And it was love at first near-death experience, and the two were wed. Together, these two traveled deep into the jungle of Congo to an unreached people group, the Yancey tribe. The Yancey tribe at the time were practicing cannibals. But the Leslies bravely and fearlessly worked among them, teaching them to read, providing them medical care, and of course, sharing the gospel. This labor for the gospel continued there without almost any fruit whatsoever for 17 years. And after 17 years, Dr. Leslie had a falling out with one of the tribal leaders. And this led the tribe to ask the Leslies to leave the village. Though the two, uh, Leslie and this tribal leader, though they were later reconciled, the Leslies returned in 1929 to the United States of America, fully believing that they had entirely failed in their calling. They had labored for the gospel. They had worked hard. They had um, planted and watered the seed and got no fruit whatsoever. And I'm sure that when they arrived home, they undoubtedly looked at each other and asked the question, what was the point of all that? Within nine years of them returning to the United States, William Leslie died. Bubbles, bubbles. All is bubbles. Over the next 90 years, William Leslie's name was lost to the history books. Just another life that didn't matter. Just like Solomon promised for most of us, Leslie's life was forgotten. Forgotten until 2010. In 2010, another missionary named Eric Ramsey felt the Lord calling him to the mission field. Specifically, to share the gospel with an unreached people group in Congo. The Yancey tribe. And so a pilot flew Ramsey and his missionary team to the city of Vanga. From Vanga, they hiked a mile to the Quilu River and crossed the half-mile river in uh, dugout canoes. There, they hiked 10 miles into the jungle and arrived at the first Yancey village. And there found something totally amazing as they were preparing to share the gospel with the Yancey, who they believed were a totally unreached people group, they discovered that not only were the Yancey people acquainted with the gospel, they themselves were missionaries for the gospel in surrounding villages to other people groups there in the jungle. Ramsey, writing about this, said this later on. When we got in there... We found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village even had its own gospel choir, even though they they didn't use that term. Each of these gospel choirs had their own hymns. They didn't have hymn books, but they wrote their own hymns. And they would have gospel sing-offs from village to village. 
in eight different villages there in the jungle across the span of 34 miles, Ramsey's team found a thriving church in every single village. One of the other things they found, which was particularly amazing, was a 1,000-seat stone cathedral built by the Yancey tribe. He learned from the locals that in the 1980s, that was the main church. And people from miles and miles away were walking through the jungle to come to uh, this church. And it became so crowded that that church and their leadership decided that it was time for every single one of the other villages to have their own church. Up to this point, when Ramsey arrived, the Yancey did not have a Bible in their own language. But they did have a Bible in French. And so the church would teach any potential leaders for a congregation how to speak French so that they could translate the Bible into their language to teach the people. Ramsey, of course, asked the people how all this happened. How was it that they had the gospel? Who trained them? Who taught them how to read and write? Who brought them a French Bible? And the people told him of a man that they only knew by one name. They told him he was a Baptist, and they told him the exact years that this man was there. And his name was William. As it turns out, unbeknownst to William Leslie or anyone else in the developed world, his impact far surpassed his time under the sun. And when he stood before God on the day of his death, I'm sure that he was as shocked as anyone to find out that he had not failed at all because he had lived faithfully and wisely. And that is how Solomon wants us to live, faithfully and wisely. So, here is the big idea from today's chapter in Ecclesiastes. If you don't get anything else from this chapter, get this. A wise life does not guarantee any temporal reward, but it does produce an eternal impact. A wise life does not guarantee a temporal reward, but it does produce an eternal impact. So, if you are drudging along, trying to live a wise life, seeing no return for your labor, trying to be faithful to God without seeing the point, and trying to figure out the answer to the question, why am I doing this? Solomon has an admonishment for me. Don't waste your life being a fool. Live your life faithfully and wisely. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, 
as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts... Do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So, I know what you might be thinking. Gosh, that introduction sounded so encouraging, and it made me think that we were about to read something equally exciting. Instead, what we were just treated to is a bunch of random proverbs about God knows what, and I still don't know what the point is. So let's first place this chapter in the context of the entire book. Remember again that the first half of the book is Solomon describing all of the ways that life under the sun is bubbles. Time marches on and no man can stop it. Nothing new will ever be accomplished. All that is, is all that there will ever be. Whatever is built is quickly washed away in the tides of time. Self-indulgence always feels good for a few moments, but Monday always comes. Work can accumulate for us wealth and possessions, but ultimately, we're always going to be handing those things off to someone else. Learning all of the wisdom of the world is going to help you beat Ken Jennings in Jeopardy, but that knowledge won't bring you any more joy. Even religious rituals, if performed for the sake of religiosity, are ultimately empty and are nothing more than play-acting. And ultimately, no matter how you live, whether it's as a wise man or a fool, you're going to meet the same fate that every other person ever has. You're going to die. That is what causes us to throw up our hands and say, why am I doing this? What is the point of it all? Which is why then Solomon spends the second half of the book turning our eyes upward, beyond the sun. If life under the sun is truly all that there is, well, then there is no point. But there is more uh, after the sun, beyond the sun. And if there is, then there is meaning to this life after all. 
And so Solomon begins to build the idea that having eternal perspective is the key to finding enjoyment. It's the key to finding meaning. It's the key to finding purpose in this short life. Because this short life is only the start. It's just the warm-up. But it can be spent in a wasteful way or in a wise way. So after calling everything pointless, Solomon builds the case for a wise life and shows us that a wise life actually isn't pointless. And remember that we are almost at the end of the book here. Some scholars believe that this book was written by Solomon at the end of his life as he's looking back. And so now he's telling his audience, having, having led them through how not to live, now Solomon is saying, let me show you now how to live. Let's, let's make this practical. So he lists out these proverbs here in chapter 10. And though it might seem random, it actually isn't. I was reading one commentary this week where the author said, it is not possible to arrange these proverbs with a central thesis in mind. In other words, this is completely random. I immediately put down that commentary and moved on. Opened another, and that one was considerably better. And the author of that commentary pointed out that this does actually follow a theme because in this, Solomon is discussing the different types of fools. Foolish rulers, foolish workers, foolish talkers, and foolish leaders. So what Solomon is doing is he's providing a contrast. He's providing a contrast between wise living and foolish living. And part of the lesson of this chapter is that the wise will be mindful of the little details, the little things, and do them consistently well. Whereas the fool will forget those details and suffer for it. Another commentary wisely pointed out that this entire chapter is a fleshing out of the last verse of the previous chapter. In chapter 9, verse 18, Solomon says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So if wisdom is better and sin destroys, what does that look like? And Solomon writes chapter 10 to say, Let me show you. And so in chapter 10, he provides us a list of proverbs intended to guide us how to live wisely. And he deals with topics like purity and holiness without compromise in verse 1. Conviction in verse 2. Attitude in verse 3. Patience in verse 4. The futility of wicked schemes in verses 8 and 9. Hard work and preparation in verses 10 through 11. The importance of the tongue in verses 12 through 14. Leadership in 16 and 17. Hard work in 18. Healthy enjoyment in life in 19. And integrity in verse 20. So he is clearly arguing that wisdom needs to be the driving and guiding force in every area of our lives. So with that framework in place, let's go back and look again at some of these verses. And what we're going to see in this chapter are three things, okay? A wise person lives well. A wise person looks at life well, and a wise person is led well. So a wise person uh, lives well, meaning they have integrity. 
A wise person looks at life well, meaning they have eternal perspective. They see things the way that they ought to see them. And they are led well, meaning they have a respect for authority as unto God. And that is the kind of person that will make an impact that will far outlive them. So, here is point number one. How you live when no one is looking will ultimately determine what everyone sees. How you live when no one is looking will ultimately determine what everyone else eventually sees. The first thing that we see in Solomon's list of Proverbs here is the importance of having integrity. Because what Solomon understands is that even if you look good on the outside, even for a long while, eventually that house of cards will crumble and people will see you for what you truly are. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. David Wheeler. And uh, Dr. Wheeler took me under his wing and he mentored me for the time that I was there. He was like a second father to me. And he, he was always the guy that would tell me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. And so there were times where he would encourage me and, and tell me uh, things about my giftedness and, and everything else. And then there were times that he would give me the swift kick in the pants that I needed. I loved the guy. And, and the one thing that he said over and over and over and over and over again is, Sway, make sure you build your ministry on character not on charisma. Build on character, not on charisma. Because charisma might gather people. Charisma might seem to make a difference. Charisma might make a splash. But charisma will ultimately fail. Charisma is not a move of the Spirit. Charisma is just like the Wizard of Oz. Character is what lasts. Character is what will carry you through. Character is what will make a difference. Integrity, living life well, faithfully, wisely, when no one else is looking, that is what's going to make a difference in your life and in the lives of the people that are around you. So let's look once more at verses 1 through 3 and verse 20. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So verses 1 and 2 explain the need to have integrity. And then verses 3 and 20 show us what will happen if we don't have integrity. Our foolishness will be found out. This is a lesson that I have been learning in earnest for the past six months, as some of you know. As I have come painfully face to face with my own pharisaicalism. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were whitewashed tombs. That they were clean on the outside, but on the inside filled with dead men's bones. 
He, he told them that, that they had washed the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup was filthy. Outwardly, they followed religious rules and rituals better than anyone else, but their hearts were filled with pride, filled with, with self-righteousness, filled with compromise. They believed themselves to be a sweet fragrance to the Lord, but God said that they were like the Grinch, stink, stank, stunk. And that is what Solomon describes in in verse 1, where he says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now we have to ask the question, how would flies get into the ointment in the first place? The reason is because the perfumer is careless and leaves it open. He made some small compromise thinking that it wasn't a big deal. That he could get away with it. He didn't have to be 100% faithful in his commitment to holiness. He could just be 98% faithful. But that's not how it works. Solomon says here that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So if we allow our hearts to compromise, even in the smallest ways, even in, in insignificant ways... It's only a matter of time before our lives start to stink. If we throw up our hands and we say, what's the point of being holy all the time? Nobody sees what I'm doing anyway. My my holiness isn't paying off anyway. We are already beginning to walk a path of foolishness. So we have to ask ourselves, what tiny flies of compromise Have I allowed to land in my life? What seemingly insignificant, what hardly noticeable things have I allowed to land in the perfume? This is an opportunity to ask God, please show me, Lord, where where are the areas where I have allowed compromise to land? Even in ways that, that it doesn't seem to matter. Solomon says it matters so much because even a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Um, Contrast this with chapter 7, verse 1, where Solomon says, A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment that hasn't been Uh, ruined by dead flies. Ointment that remains uh, with the, uh, the, the smell of perfume that it's supposed to have. And a good name is even better than that. So he's saying a good name will not result if we allow this compromise to take place. These dead flies will always end up making the perfume stink. Not the other way around. It's not as if all the good in our life outweighs the bad, where, where we can put it on scales and say, well, I do way more good than I do bad. So it kind of outweighs the other. The scales don't move in that direction. They always move in the opposite. The folly always outweighs the wisdom. Perfume, interestingly enough, doesn't make the dead flies smell good. The dead flies make the perfume smell bad. Similarly, as we have all found out in the last year, sick people 
don't get healed by being around people who are well. Hello, coronavirus, right? It is sick people that make all the healthy people infected. If an infected person walks into the room, all of the healthy people are at risk. It's not as if an infected person can just hang out with a bunch of people who are healthy and all of a sudden they are better. In this life, what is bad, what is infectious, what is, what is poisonous, always will turn the negative, will always turn the good negative. Every time. And so Solomon wants us to live wisely because if we allow compromise, even just a little bit, it will ruin us. Now we know that every single one of us is guilty of that. We have all compromised in various ways. We are all bogged down with these dead flies, which is why we need so badly a God to rescue us from that. That's another part of the point of this. Not only do we throw up our hands and say, what's the point? We also throw up our hands and say, what am I going to do? Who is going to save me? Who's going to rescue me? And this points us to our need for Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can make the scale go in the opposite direction. Jesus is the only one where the good outweighs the bad. Where the good removes the bad. Jesus himself, being totally pure could purify the impure. Jesus, being holy, could make the unholy holy. Jesus himself, being life, could bring the dead to life again. And so he must be the one that we give ourselves to completely and entirely. He must be the one that we bring the dead flies to and say, take these away and make the perfume smell good again. Because if we don't, Solomon makes it very clear that it won't be long before our foolishness becomes evident to all. He says that a fool's heart inclines him to sin. Where he says that a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, meaning towards what is proper and good. A fool's heart inclines him to the left, that is, towards sin. A fool's heart will eventually lead him in the place that he ought not go. And he says that when a fool walks along the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So he's he's painting a picture of a life. And the life is what speaks. The life is what says to everyone. Every other person watching can hear his life saying, I'm a fool. I'm a fool. I'm a fool. Verse 20 tells us that that even if we think we're doing things in secret, even if we think no one is watching, no one can hear me, no one can see me, I'm by myself, somehow your sin will always find you out. Like clockwork. Even if it takes a while, even if it remains under the surface for a long time, even if it seems like it's never going to be found out, Solomon guarantees some bird of the air will carry your voice. Some winged creature will tell the matter. Somehow, some way, your sin will always find you out. So if you want to live a life that makes an impact, that outlasts your time under the sun, you have to live that life when no one else is looking. You have to live that life out in the jungle where the world can't see you. 
You have to grind away, getting no fruit for years. But if you don't give up, if you remain faithful, if you are wise, you will have a good name, better than precious ointment. Point number two. Life must be held with an open hand held up to God. Life must be lived, must be held, I'm sorry, with an open hand held up to God. So I want to briefly revisit part of the passage that we looked at last week um, in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 9, 11 and 12, Solomon said, Again I saw... That under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and birds that are caught in the snare, so the children of men are snared up at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now take that verse and Uh, With those verses in mind, now let's look again at chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, where he says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. There are places in Proverbs, for example, where Solomon describes wicked men who are digging a pit in order to snare or trap someone else. And that that trap that they have set, they will fall into themselves. But that, in context, is not what he is talking about here. Here, he's expanding on his previous words from chapter 9. Here he's talking about people going about their daily lives. People who are going about their daily business. Be it construction or in the quarry with the Flintstones. Being a lumberjack or being a snake charmer. Which at the time was someone's job. And suddenly, without warning, tragedy suddenly befalls them. And so... Just like we talked about last week, what Solomon is trying to establish here is that living a wise life does not give you any guarantee of any kind of temporal reward under the sun. And it's very important that he points that out because the prosperity gospel tries to teach us the opposite. If you're faithful to God, if you just give him your best, if you believe hard enough, if you do well enough, and if you send in your gift of $200, God will make sure that you live your best life now. You'll have a life of ease and blessing. Smile, God loves you. Pray the prayer of Jabez and God will extend the borders of your blessing. That might seem obvious to us right now to be false. Typically, in everyday life, it's not that obvious. But that doesn't mean that in everyday life, we haven't fallen prey to the same sort of message. Usually, it's a lot more subtle 
right? Usually it isn't until something bad happens in our lives. When something bad happens, our hearts reveal that we actually have fallen into that trap. Because when something bad happens, that's when we say, God, how could you let this happen to me? I've been faithful. I don't deserve this. Subtly, without realizing it, we fall into the lie that a wise and faithful life will guarantee us certain blessings and protections in this life under the sun. And Solomon says, actually, you could be living a very good and wise and faithful life and an accident takes you out. You could be a wise and and faithful missionary and you can work for 17 years in a jungle and you see no fruit whatsoever until the day of your death. You could save a whole city with your wisdom as he talks about at the end of chapter 9 and your name is not even remembered. But the fool doesn't live that way. The fool believes that they can rely on their skill, on their wisdom, on their giftedness, and that life is going to work out exactly the way that it's supposed to, exactly the way that they've planned it. That's what he describes in verses 12 through 15, where he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the fool's lips consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So what we have here in verse 14 is a fool speaking confidently about the future, forgetting no one knows the future. To use a a phrase that's common to us, this is a guy that counts his chickens before they hatch. This is a guy that that it it says, he, he multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what is after him? But he keeps talking, like he knows exactly what's gonna happen based on what he's doing, based on what he's earned, based on what he's accomplished. And he says, this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen. I've got my whole life planned out. But then ironically, we find that the, tool, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. A commentator named Brian Bell says that the comedy here is that this fool knows so much about the future, yet he has to ask directions to the next well-marked city. Um, in this time, we don't have a network of roads like we have now, with side streets everywhere. There were just main roads, And the main roads led to the main cities. Okay, there's one road. It takes a dolt to get lost. So a guy who can't even find his way to a city is a guy that's looking at the road going, I don't know where this goes. And yet, he thinks that he can tell the future. The point is that the fool pretends to know so much and talks like he knows so much. But for all his talk, he is tired He is weary and he's lost. We need to have the right perspective of life. We need to hold this life with an open hand as if it is an offering to God, knowing that every single day that we get is not a guarantee, it is a gift. 
He can call us home at any given moment. And in his eternal wisdom, he has already worked out the details of the best time to do that. And he is going to be the one to make the fruit come out of a life that is lived well. A life that is lived faithfully. So even if you don't live to see the fruit, even if you endure hardship, even if you see tragedy befall you, remember this life is not all that there is. This life is only the beginning. And our reward is eternal. It's not temporal. This is not our home. There awaits for us an eternal weight of glory if indeed your hope is in Jesus. A wise person lives well, regardless of who's watching. A wise person has a proper view of their life and has an eternal perspective. And finally, a wise person views authority in life as representing the Lord, whether that authority is good or evil. So here's point number three. How you submit to those above you displays how, you, how submitted you are to the one above them. How you submit to those above you displays how submitted you are to the one above them. One of the best ways to tell how humble a person is or how proud a person is is how they speak about those in authority above them and how they submit or don't submit to those in authority above them. If they are unable to submit themselves to an earthly king, they're going to have a really hard time submitting themselves to the heavenly king of kings. Now, I'm not saying that that's an easy task, okay? Not even Solomon says that this is an easy task. Even he understands and points out that it's incredibly difficult to do this sometimes. Look at verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Have you ever worked in a job where you had a supervisor that made you say, how on earth did this person get their job? Anyone? Don't worry, the camera's not on you, okay? You can raise your hand if you've ever been in that situation. And every day you go to work and you have to submit to this absolute numbskull. I have been in those situations before, okay? Solomon observes that this happens in life all the time. And he points out that it's not how it should be. He calls it an evil under the sun. But that doesn't give us an excuse to be foolish. Even if that is your station in life, you need to be wise and self-controlled. That's what he just got finished saying in verse 4, right before this. So look at verse 4. He says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. If the ruler rises up against you, don't leave your place. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. He says, stay calm. Right? I've worked in a number of jobs where I have 
had this happen to me. And boy, were there so many times that I wanted to pop off on my boss. Times that I wanted to blow up my boss's spot. Times where I could have. Times where I could have been justified even in blowing up their spot. But we have to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Just like Jesus did. Romans 13, for example, tells us that our submission to authority is an experiential analogy of how we submit to God. Right? We've talked about experiential analogies in this church before. Um, being a parent is an experiential analogy because in that you get to experience the love of the father for his children. You get to go, ah, this is what it means that God loves us like a father loves his children. Marriage is an experiential analogy uh, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Here we find that, that submission to authority is an experiential analogy of our submission to God. It is a way of practicing humility and honor and respect. Because if, if we can do that for flawed and sinful people that, that at times we completely oppose, all the more will we be willing to do it for a God who, knows, who we know that he loved us enough to die for us. Unfortunately, that is not what I see as I look across the church in America. I do not see in the church in America a humble people. What I see, probably what you see, is a people so married to the kingdom of this world that they have forgotten where their allegiance is supposed to lie. I see church-going people, people that, that I know, people that I've loved and respected, acting like spoiled brats, acting like children, Solomon in in verse 16 talks about leaders who act like children. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. We have no idea what that's like, right? Leaders who act like children? We We haven't seen in our recent history any point at which leadership in maybe our nation maybe in the capital somewhere where, where a leader acts like a child. We, we, haven't, we haven't seen maybe presidential debates, for example, where everyone who is running for the office is acting like a four-year-old, right? We, we haven't seen any of that, right? That's, that's just here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Further, these verses go on to describe poor leadership, lazy leadership, He talks about princes feasting uh, for drunkenness, where he says in verse 18, through sloth the roof sinks in, through indolence the house leaks. Match that again with verses 5 through 7, where he talks about people in leadership who don't belong there, right? He, He describes that these people, these leaders are feasting for drunkenness, rather than feasting at the proper time, which is when they're celebrating hard-earned victory. He says it's fine to feast if you're celebrating hard-earned victory. If you are celebrating hard work paid off, but if you're just getting drunk as a leader, that is poor. 
He talks in, in the laziness verses here. The, the king is not properly prepared to take care of the kingdom. It says that he allows the roof to cave in because he's not paying attention to the things that need to be done in order to take care of it. And this is an example of how he leads the nation where he says, through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the house leaks. Back in those days, the roofs of the houses needed to have consistent maintenance. If they weren't consistently maintained, they would cave in. And so a lazy person allows their roof to cave in. And this is an example of how this leader leads a nation. He is unconcerned with things that need to be done in order to properly take care of the people and their needs. And so in a sense, the roof of the nation caves in. Then he talks in verse 19 about bread, wine, and money. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. If we rip that verse out of context, we might go, huh, that's interesting. Money answers everything. It seems to go against conventional wisdom, right? But what's happening here is this is the attitude of the foolish leader and his team. This isn't a verse where Solomon just randomly interjects a word of truth, okay? The verses before and after, this verse is bracketed by verses talking about poor leadership. And so, here he displays that this leader believes he is more concerned with feasting than he is with leading, and that he can just throw money at any problem to solve it. So that's what he's talking about in verse 19. So this is a terrible leader. This is a terrible king. This is a person who should not be there. This is a person that is over the nation that leads the nation to woe. Verse 16, woe to you land when your king is a child. Bad, bad, bad leadership. However, here's the key. Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. That is what this section has been leading up to. He's saying, even if you happen to find yourself under such an administration, under such a poor leader, under someone who you think is going to lead the nation's roof to cave in, that doesn't make it okay to curse them. He says, even when you're by yourself, even when you're alone, you still ought to show respect to the king. Part of living wisely is having integrity. And part of living wisely is doing so under the leadership of people who don't even belong in leadership. And a huge part of living wisely is having the right attitude, which is one of humility and submission. This past week was the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Regardless of who you voted for, if you can't live in respect for the leader of our nation, you are acting like a fool. And there are a lot, a lot of people in the church acting like fools right now. Go on to Facebook and spend 2.5 seconds scrolling. And you will find posts from people who claim to know Jesus. People who are 
churchgoers, people who are Christians that are posting disrespectful, hateful, racist, flat out racist, racist, mean-spirited, and childish things. You know that people can see that crap, right? That, that's in public. I, I'm, I'm embar- embarrassed at the way that some church-going people are acting during this time in our nation. And, and don't think for a second that people in the world are not noticing this. Don't, don't ever think that the world doesn't see that and say to themselves, why would I ever want to be a Christian? And that, to me, is the greatest cause here for righteous anger. Anger. Because I don't care what your politics are or who your favorite or least favorite politicians are, what party you support or don't support, or anything else. Okay, the minute that that stuff starts to get in the way of the gospel, the minute that that stuff starts to become an obstacle to the gospel, you stand in judgment. You're working against the kingdom, not for it. Okay, I could give a rip less if you think that the politicians you're attacking are evil people who stand for evil things. Because guess what? No one is acting more evil than you right now. No one. Because you know better. You know better. You know the truth of God's word. Act like it. Take heed the words of 1 Peter 2.17. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor every... What does it say? Honor everyone. Honor everyone. Who? The, the people you agree with, the people you like, the people you think. Should, no, no. Honor every, everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And guys, listen to me. These are words that are written directly after Peter lived through the reign of Emperor Nero. A guy who literally took Christians and burned them as lamps for his house parties. If Peter can say that after living through Nero, and you can't live that out in America, something is deeply, deeply wrong. With your attitude, yours. Solomon says, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. So it should go without saying that you shouldn't curse the king in your Facebook post either. That's what it looks like to be the fool in verse 3. You are walking on the road lacking sense, saying to everyone, I am a fool, I am a fool, I am a fool. And the world sees it. The world says, you are a fool. Church, please, let's not live that way. Let's not act that way. Let's submit to the authority of God and to the authority of the authorities that he has placed 
above us as his representatives. A wise person will live their life well, regardless of who is in leadership above them or in submission to them. Whether they are by themselves or in a crowd of people, a wise person has an eternal perspective of their life under the sun, knowing that this is not all that there is. And a wise person will sacrifice their pride, live under the rulers of this world in ways that submit to God himself. So I want to close by encouraging you with the words of 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In what? In, in vain. Your labor is not in bubbles. Your labor is not hevel. It is not vanity of vanities. It is not meaningless. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor, your wisdom, your faithfulness in the Lord are worth something eternal. And someday, standing before God, he will ultimately reveal what kind of fruit your life produced. Fruit that you did not see when you were here. Until then, stand firm in the jungle. Do the work that God has called you to do without compromise, without fear, without ever giving up. Let's pray.